0: Welcome to the checkout, Jason Davis, international representative of BCTGM, Bakers, Confectioners, Tobacco, Grain Millers Union. Thanks so much for making time for us today.
1: Oh, uh, no problem, Merrill. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, listeners will know that we, we've had quite a few BCTGM related episodes, and you seem to have a unique position. Tell us a little bit about um, the work that you do because you also seem very busy and we appreciate you making time for us.
1: Oh <laughs> well, it's no problem at all. I am a, uh, Errol, I'm an international representative in the Midwest region here. Uh, a lot of my job duties entail uh, negotiating contracts, uh, organizing uh, new, new shops, uh, grievous meetings, arbitrations, um, kind of a jack, kind of a jack of all trades and um, we, get, we get around uh, all around the Midwest here working on all this.
0: How'd you get into that? How'd you get that job? i started i started
1: off as a uh, as a route salesman with hostess brands actually in uh, orlando Florida um, i worked there for 11 years uh, prior to being elected as uh, president of my local local 103 out of orlando Florida um, you know through the hostess strike and uh, after the hostess strike i was uh, hired by president durkey as a representative in the S- southern region um, 2015. I uh, served there until 2020 uh, when President, or International President Durkee passed, and International President Anthony Shelton took over, um, asked if I would come up here to the Midwest and give a hand and help out up here in the Midwest. We have a vice president and um, looking for some experienced uh, assistance up here in the Midwest, and uh, here I am. So April, uh, April 1st, my wife and I moved to Evansville, Indiana from uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, love every minute of it. Love every minute of it.
0: You know, I, I bet you like the summers up there, but the winters are probably a bit of a shock.
1: It it truly is, Errol. It truly is. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of nice. Of course, uh, we'll, it'll take some uh, getting used to in the in the winter here. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I, I love the winter though. I'm down in Austin, so uh, I do miss having four seasons.
1: That was a large that was a large portion of uh, of uh, what my wife and I enjoy about Evansville and being here in the Midwest is, is having four seasons my wife's from the Louisville area so uh, we're pretty close to Louisville there out of Evansville.
0: total totally Ohio Valley River area so that's that's yeah. great um, tell us a little about the work you do you mentioned a bunch of different words like arbitration and uh, mediations and etc and I, myself I not familiar with that type of work so go ahead
1: so, so yeah, um, you know, a large portion of what I do is um, is negotiate contracts, uh, assist our local unions in negotiating their uh, collective bargaining agreements and their contracts. I also work uh, as an organizer. Uh, we're looking to organize new shops and and looking to organize uh, within our shops that we already have uh, in right to work states that we have. Uh, when I talked about grievance and arbitration, um, I, I do assist. There's several of our locals. Local unions that have uh, what we call four-step uh, grievance procedures that call for an international representative to assist with the grievance procedure to try to help keep it from going to arbitration. So I'll uh, assist our local unions in the grievance procedure, uh, contract enforcement type of things. Um, and then when all else fails and we have to go to arbitration, I have, uh, I have arbitrated cases as well um, and litigated those cases as a, uh, for the union side.
0: That's amazing. Well, Jim seems to have been pretty busy these last couple of years. Yeah, we've, yeah. we've covered a yes, number of different have. strikes. Yeah, so tell us about like what what is the the sort of philosophy or direction of the union? Um, because you've been popping up in my in my feed quite a bit um, for the last 18, 24 months.
1: You know, our our, our international union we're a uh, we're a member we are a members focused um, international union. Um, to where we're out to support the members and, uh, and work for the members and, and work through uh, what the members are looking for. Um, you know, if our members are, you know, much, much like a lot of other unions um, through the pandemic, our members came to work every day. Uh, they had to phys- come to a physical address, physical location to work. Um, they worked through the pandemic. They did it admirably. Uh, they put their cells at danger. They put their families at danger with covid um and the pandemic coming through there, uh, coming out of COVID last year. Um, I think a lot of it started up, uh, last year with uh, in Topeka, Kansas, with our group in Frito-Lay local two one eight. Um, I was actually out on that strike line as well. <laughs> I, was, I was on all three, uh, all three strikes last year. Um, you know, it started up with, with local Two Um, I've, I've been on, I've been on a number of strikes in my career with the BCTGM and, uh, you could tell, you tell last year out there in Topeka, things were different. Things were different, different in a few ways. Um, you know, one way that workers workers were fed up to a point where um, they were ready to stand up for what they deserved and what they wanted. Uh, the economy was such that workers haven't had this much leverage in decades. It's been decades since workers had, have had as much leverage as they have today, uh, due largely in part to the job market they have out there. Um, You know, it makes it it makes it easier for our members to um, stand up and fight uh, to get contracts that they want and deserve um, and and continue to uh, take the the economic pressure off themselves. So you can tell the difference there. uh, Also, the difference with community support. Um, You look at the free Lay strike that we had last year, you know, the community related to what those what those members were fighting for coming out of the pandemic. Everybody's ready to get back out. you know, it's not a time to take from your workers. It was a time to, and we're still at that time, you know, it's a time to reward your workers uh, for the work that they put in over that almost two years. Um, you know, as, as, folks, as folks are presumably like you, and, and I know myself uh, have the luxury of being able to at times work from home. Uh, our members did not, our members came to the factories every single day uh, worked to put out the product uh, to keep this country going. You know, a lot of our, you know, bakery confectionery, back-of-workers and grain millers, you know, we, we put out a lot of food, Errol. And, this uh, country
0: runs on Oreos. I don't want to hear it.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, American-made Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yes, absolutely. So, you know, last year, I think we reached the tipping point, um, and our members let us know that they were fed up, um, you know, with, with President Shelton, Secretary-Treasurer Woods, um, and some of the new uh, leadership that we have throughout the international um, you know, we are very committed. We're recommitting, um, to do and, and to follow our members and, and, um, and to, uh, you know, push, push forward and push exactly what our members are looking for. You know, all unions are, are member driven organizations, you know, members are our boss. Um, and you would try not to forget that, you know, when I was elected as business agent in my local union, I, I turned to a number of friends of mine and I told them, you know, if, if I ever at one time forget who I work for, Remind me once, vote me out the second time. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a philosophy that, uh, that, that everyone within this international union believes in. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're out here walking the walk. So,
0: Excellent. Well, speaking of which, I've been reading a bit about uh, a strike at a company called Ingredion uh, for Gem. So tell us a little bit about what Ingredion is, what they make, what they do.
1: In- ingredients is significantly different than the strikes that uh, that we had last year. You know, you think of Frito Lay, uh, Nabisco, uh, Kellogg, John Deere. Um, ingredient here is a uh, it's a corn manufacturer in Cedar Rapids. Uh, so they bring in corn, uh, to steep it, and they produce a corn starch. The majority of their corn starches go to um, go to corrugated cardboard boxes. It goes towards uh, the production of paper. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I've learned so much working with these folks. You know, that with paper, you get the pulp, uh, you get some clay, but then you need the cornstarch in order to um, keep the pen, keep the ink from the pens from running. Uh, the cornstarch will also control the glossiness, uh, the thickness of the paper, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not really a product that everyday Americans are are used to. But it's something that's in the hands of everyday Americans every day. Um, you know, one of the large they have, they have a few large um, customers with uh, international paper, Georgia, Georgia Pacific, um, Amazon. Chances are your Amazon Amazon cardboard boxes that come to your house if you're ordering off Amazon uh, have some cornstarch in it, uh, and it's part of the ingredients towards making those boxes. Uh, so this this production facility here uh, focuses on those types of corn starches. They also have some byproducts that they put out for animal feed and, and things of that nature. But uh, that's as, as all uh, milling plants here through the Midwest, it seems to be.
0: So this isn't the cornstarch we find in our, our pantries?
1: Not typically, no, sir. No.
0: What's no, the work like? Different. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. What's the work like? What, what do you folks do in a facility that makes cornstarch for industrial uses?
1: oh we have we have <laughs> it's it's kind of all over the perspective we have them we have everywhere from uh, lab technicians uh because it is a it is a chemical process uh to get the starch out and the product that they're looking for out of it uh, so we have the quality control lab in this unit uh, we have operators that will operate the uh, pumps and machinery the mills um, that mill the corn um, we have product handlers we have chemi- hand, chemical handlers Uh, uh, packaging folks, Uh, you know, it's broken down. There's, there's um, a couple different departments. It's, uh, it's uh, um, the grind and starch, I guess, basically are the the two main departments here, but you know, it goes, it takes all the way from the, from the process of receiving corn to uh, steeping it, grinding it. Uh, Our operators operate the the pumps and equipment that that pushes it to dry it, uh, dry the product. separate the product they separate gluten off the product which is another one of their byproducts uh, that they separate Um, and then it goes into packaging where we'll we'll have package handlers we have um, uh, chemical handlers and then all through the process our lab tech our lab techs and i'll I'll hit a lot of these lab techs because this is a big portion of uh, contention uh, for why we're out on the streets currently um, you know that, that test the product and test the byproducts, test the uh, waste water that goes back to the system through the process.
0: So how big is Ingredion? Like what, what's the, the type of company that they are? Because most folks have not heard of them. Like they've heard of Kellogg's, they've heard of Nabisco, they, they've heard of Frito-Lay, but Ingredion is one of those supply chain companies that's, that's sort of behind the scenes that aren't really in the public eye.
1: Ingredient uh, from from what I've read, I mean, we have a hundred, we have hundred and twenty bargaining unit employees here. I believe there's about one hundred and fifty to one hundred and sixty that work at this facility here in Cedar Rapids. Uh, Ingredient um, worldwide uh, deploys about twelve thousand employees. Um, so it's not not a huge company, um, but not not a terribly small company either. It uh, they've uh, made enough money to have eighty six million dollars worth of stock buyback so far this year. So You know,
0: (laughs) nothing like a little upward wealth distribution.
1: Amen there, Errol. You know, and that's and that's been the, uh, you know, the sickening piece throughout all the strikes last year. And this one's uh, really not a whole lot different than the ones last year's. These companies have made record profits off of the work rules and the contracts that they have in place today. Uh, Yet there's a, a select few of them that come to the table insisting on take backs from the employees during times like this. And um, you know, it's, it, it's, for someone like me, it's, it's just a disgusting thing. You know, you, the company is doing just fine with the work worlds we have, um, you know, and in a lot of cases like to Nabisco uh, and a large portion of this contract at this point uh, with ingredient, we're just fighting to maintain and keep what we have here today. It's not that we are uh, fighting to expand our contract or, um, or push, uh, push unreasonably back against the company, as I can get into to some, of our, uh, some of the details, maybe, or some of the um, sticking points that we currently have with the contract.
0: Let's do that. Let, let's hear about some of these sticking points. Particularly, I, I've been talking to a lot of workers around the country who are fed up, and the reason why they're going on strike is that things are being taken away from them despite the company's success. I mean that's that's the shame about you know what what is happening these last few years, as well as you know the fact that there are all these profits that are not being distributed back to workers. So tell us a bit about some of the more particular sticking points,
1: please. Absolutely, I'd, I'd be glad to. You know, the Ingredient I purchased this plant in 2015, and I guess it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson here too. <laughs> but Ingredient I purchased this plant for Benford Benford Foods uh, back in 2015. Um, Came through, we had a long, the, the local had a long battle with, uh, with ingredient coming in, trying to rewrite the contract. Uh, I believe it was found founded. Uh, they prematurely uh, came declared impasse in a lot of portions. Uh, the labor board was able to straighten some of it out. And they came to the table this time. Uh, the company came to the table in an attempt to almost rewrite the contract, Errol. Um, you know, I, I, I've been quoted in a couple other media pieces. Our differences are so many and so far. Uh, because there is so many issues that we have, uh, but if we want to look down and, and drill down and really look, take a closer look at um, some of the bigger issues I, I talked about the lab employees, uh, this this plant, this local organized oh, many decades ago, uh, when they organized uh, lab and quality control associates was part of the recognition clause that we have, uh, the companies proposed and insisted all, all the way into the last best and final offer. Uh, to remove the lab department from our employees, they uh, the company has uh, "quote unquote" um, desiring more professional uh, workforce in the lab. Exactly, that's <laughs> that's that's the way I felt about it too. But yeah, they're they're looking for a, a more professional lab department, which um, makes little sense to to the union. You know, as as a, as recently as um, our last discussion with the company ask them, what is it the current lab department can't do that, that they're looking for? They, they talk about uh, troubleshooting issues, which I, I scratch my head to because every one of our lab techs that work in the lab department uh, bid into that department and they have spent some time uh, on the floor as an operator. Um, so who better to troubleshoot the process than someone who's actually participated in the process at one point or another? Um, so there's there's a lot of it leaves, leaves me scratching my head uh, as we're, as we're in discussions with the company. Uh, another piece that's a, that's a, a huge point for our members is, uh, health and welfare language. Um, we have a health and welfare, um, package with the company here. Uh, that's different than their corporate package. It's different than what they have uh, available. Some of their other, uh, locations, um, I mean, we are a single pool There's you know, just the 120 bargaining unit members that are part of this package. Uh, but we're on a cost share basis um, when it comes to premiums that we pay every week. And what I mean by that is we pay a percentage of the actual cost of what the health care is. So the company tr- is attempting to move us to a larger, pardon me, to a larger, let me silence that, no, be better. The company's trying to look to do is is move us to a um, a larger health health care plan that some of their other facilities are on, uh, that we consider to be an inferior plan to what we have. Uh, Our co-pays would go up. Our out-of-pocket limits would go up. um, Our going to the doctor's uh, prices would change. Uh, But more more, uh, egregious in our mind is uh, it would come with the ability for the company to change the plan design from year to year. Uh, typically when we negotiate a contract, we negotiate a health and welfare package and that's the health and welfare package until the end of the contract. Uh, that plan design won't change. It's one of the beauties of having a union contract is you know what your benefits are going to be for the next three years, four years, five years, whatever the term may be. Uh, but we're going to the company plan. They're insistent upon, uh, being, having the ability to change that plan from year to year during the contract. Um, So you get all this in our members' eyes and what they've told us is they feel that that the company offered health and welfare plan is inferior to the plan that they have today. But yet when you look at the cost share that I spoke about a second ago, they have to pay more in premium. So the overall plan costs more. So it will actually cost the company more money to provide the members of a plan that they consider to be inferior Just in order to change that, you know, it leaves me scratching my mind. Is it it so they have the ability to change the plan design from year to year? Why would a company want to pay more for a plan that its members, that its employees consider to be inferior to the plan that they have today? It's, you know, I'm I'm, I'm perplexed by it. I truly am. (laughs) But, uh, you know, this plan would include surcharges. For instance, if your spouse, uh, if your spouse had a job, you would be forced to pay extra every month just because he or she, uh, may have, um, medical coverage available to them. If you're a tobacco user, which I am, and you know, as the PCTGM, <laughs> we are, we are uh, made up of tobacco. If you're a tobacco user, there'd be an additional surcharge, uh, to your plan. And that, that may be something that, that, uh, that is going around a little bit, but it's not something that our members here, um, are willing to accept at this point. You know, this that totally that, also adds and increases to charges sure the company will come out and say oh we have some offsets to it but the overall cost of the health and welfare plan is going to go up and the uncertainty to the members as to what their plan is going to look like over the term of this contract um, is a big of large concern to us Um, so that's where I'm at with the with the health and welfare Um, coming to overtime scheduling a a big portion of unions as you mentioned you belong to a union and in all honesty, it's what really got me going with the unions is seniority. I've never been one to kiss a lot of butt, so <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I enjoyed my seniority. I got my job because of my seniority, because of how long I've been there, not how well, not how well someone liked me. Um, so there's there's a number of proposals the company has out uh, that would diminish my seniority rights. Uh, first one I look at is is overtime scheduling. You know, we get into overtime scheduling, Uh, the company's looking at at a, um, as a rotational based uh, system or a equalization type piece for overtime scheduling, um, as opposed to a straight seniority system as we have today. Uh, Straight, straight seniority system provides you, you, you go from the top, most senior person to the bottom of the list, ask them if they'd like to work. And if we can't find enough volunteers, we force the low senior person to uh, to work. That's the way seniority works. Um, you know, lower senior folks, um, you know, will appreciate that fact once they have seniority. Um, but that's the way seniority works. So, their overtime scheduling system, uh, what they're looking at doing, um, would force a uh, equalization type of method for overtime scheduling, as opposed to uh, as opposed to uh, straight seniority system.
0: It seems that in a tight job market, that's not a good job retention strategy.
1: Well, you know, not not for our senior folks, or the folks that are here What the company's argument and claim is, is that, uh, you know, in a tight job market, the, there's higher turnover. And uh, Ingredients is no different than a lot of the, the other employers in that uh, there's a lot of newer employees and they feel it puts an unfair uh, burden on the newer employees. But it's definitely not a retention piece for the folks that are here. You know, we we do have a bit of uh, turnover uh, at this facility uh, prior to this contract, uh, but we also do have a large senior workforce here as well. Um, you know, there's uh, there's probably there's probably twenty percent of my members out on the line that were here in two thousand four uh, when they had to, to go on strike with the company. So, um, you know, we look we look at that process uh, also diminishing. Our, when I talk about diminishing uh, effects on our seniority. We're looking for a new, uh, a new, like bidding process. Uh, they're looking to put these, these jobs into classifications. We currently have a two tier wage system here. So everybody in the plan is either a tier one operator or a tier two operator, um, with the company. And, and there's interest in the union too, to, uh, getting towards, um, getting towards agreements on, um, breaking down into classifications. So what the company's trying to do is break into classifications and um, provide what they call lock-in times. You've been on a job been on a job you would you'd be stuck in that job for however long that that, that job would have. In addition the company's proposing uh, a couple jobs um, to where it would be selected solely uh, a few jobs actually there's three different job classifications they're projecting. To where the um, the selection you basically could sign an interest bid, and if the company likes you and you get along with the company, you can have the job. If, uh, if the company doesn't like you, you may have the most seniority, apply for it, and be completely capable and qualified to do the job, but you're not going to get it. You know, one of those jobs that that uh, stickers the safety one that comes to mind is a safety coordinator position. Um, you know, this is something that we've proposed to. Let's have let's have some mutual say it. You know, if, if somebody's totally picked uh, by one side or the other, then um, then how how uh, independent and how much um, how independent and how how much work can they can they work towards actually keeping the workforce safe? Because you know, I would like to get into this uh, this interview to talk a little bit about the uh, the safety risks and, and and the kind of things that uh, that go on out of the plant uh, when it, when we talk about cornstarch. Uh, cornstarch explosions, dust explosions, uh, and some of the things that we've had out here uh, over the last 31 days. We're on day 31 of the strike today. So over the last 31 days, uh, some of the things that's happened at this plant, um, you know, that's a concern, especially when you have uh, untrained and unqualified uh, replacement workers doing their jobs. Um, For for another large sticking point that we still have on the table, it's our vacations. Um, You know, and this is this is a big piece for us on our vacations. the company is actually proposing now. You tell me a few friends about right now economy, which company has been, would propose a reduction in the amount of time off that an employee gets. But yet, uh, yet because of the way that the vacations are calculated here, um, the company's proposal would actually take days away from employees, uh, especially the more senior employees uh, when it turns to how much vacation time they get. Um, you know i've walked through a little bit with the wages classifications but you know we have and those those are just some of our, our larger sticky items uh, that's got us out that has us out on the streets you know there's another a number of other issues um that we have in here um for instance a easier a easier path to move from eight hour days to 12 hour days that's a big piece for a lot of our members um, you know, we're currently on an eight hour workday um, and we're pretty much guaranteed our days off when we're off when we're off, we're off uh, under the under the company's proposed system. Uh, should the members choose to to move to a 12 hour schedule, uh, those days off are no longer guaranteed. The reason for that is because of how overtime is covered. When you're on an eight hour shift, if you have somebody that calls in or if you have a short term vacancy, um, you can. You uh, you can force over someone into a, from an eight-hour shift to a twelve-hour shift, and you can call people in early, um, and that's how you would cover an eight-hour vacancy. If you're on twelve-hour shifts, the only way to cover a twelve-hour vacancy is through calling someone in on their day off, and that's not something the company wanted to um, continue to guarantee was a day, was their days off uh, under twelve-hour schedule. So, you know, it's uh, it's, a, it's a big big sticking point for our members out there.
0: It sounds like a lot with a lot of these policies that they're trying to implement through these contract clawbacks and and changes. um, It it sounds like a lot of the the efficient labor practices that have uh, happened in in a lot of other industries, auto industries, um, you know, uh, grocery retail, automated fulfillment, where they they just want to be able to manage the workforce to, to the bottom line in the most efficient, productive way possible without regard to work-life balance or, or happiness or, or even retention? I mean, that may be an assumption on my part. I mean, is, is that something that you're reading into as well?
1: Um, in, in some cases, although although the company will try to say that uh, they're trying to provide a work-life balance with the 12-hour shifts, uh, you get additional days off. But you know, in my experience, when you move to a 12-hour shift, I'm um, sure it looks good on paper, but in reality, when it actually works out, it doesn't work out uh, so well. You know, and it leads us back to an initial point with, um, with, uh, with what we we're talking about. You know, it's uh, um, well, maybe I'll go back a little backwards on this piece, but, um, you know, the, uh, the company actually utilized uh, some language from another employer here in town um, to try to rewrite our, our overtime scheduling and bidding language job classifications and uh, you know it's not it's not so egregious to use another contract from another union around town uh you know what the issue is, is is there the other piece uh that they're trying to put into this plant is totally different it's a totally different manufacturing atmosphere uh to what we do it's more of an assembly line um, type of manufacturing whereas we have more skilled operators uh, that work a little more independently upon one another, you know, what the part of the company proposals are expecting people to learn, um, you know, far more than, than, than one or two jobs. I think they're currently, I think they're currently in two, they understand at least two jobs so they can move around a little bit, but uh, the company's wanting to force them into uh, cross trading with, within a number of different job classifications. And, when you're talking about an assembly line, you know that may be easier said than uh, on this facility. Um, you know, geographically, we have uh, buildings all over this facility. Not certain what the overall acreage footprint of the plant is, uh, but I know we have we have multiple buildings. You know, uh, at least eight to eight to twelve uh, buildings on the site. Uh, that workers work with at each of these buildings. So, within each of these buildings, there's not necessarily more than one or two jobs uh, that someone might operate. So, um, to, to do what they're doing, and, and we took a look at at the proposals because you know we come to the table and try to take a serious look at how to fix problems. Errol, you know that's that's uh, where I view negotiations. You know, if if it's truly a problem, illustrate how it's a problem. We'll take a look at it. And you know, if, if there's an interest in if there's an interest in working towards it, we'll work towards it. But, um, but you know, the, the company hasn't truly been able to articulate uh, a lot of the issues they've been having, uh, or or issues that they have at all, quite frankly, on some of these proposals as to why they would need uh, some of these changes. So it's right. um, it's been a little frustrating, to say the least.
0: Tell us a bit about how working conditions have been during COVID nineteen. Particularly, you, you mentioned cornstarch as an additive in corrugated boxes, and you know, with the uptick in automated fulfillment and home delivery and e-commerce, et cetera. I, I have a feeling that there was more production needs for cardboard boxes, for instance. So, I'm just curious what the COVID nineteen conditions were like in the last couple of years.
1: Um, they, they worked, they worked through, I um, worked worked some extensively. Worked some extensive overtime. Um, you know, they, they all came to, they all came to work and they, and they continue to push their products through. Um, so, you know, it was, it was busy. It was, it was busy, busy, busy. <laughs> so.
0: so just to summarize, what's at stake? What's motivating the union members to be on the picket line for this many days now?
1: Well, the union members are, are fighting to maintain their contract. Uh, they're, try- they're, they're trying to maintain uh, what they have in a contract. They don't want their contract rewritten. Uh, the company has explained on some of these proposals, uh, they want it rewritten because they don't understand it. You've got a plant manager that's been here uh, three years or less. You've got an HR manager that's been here less than five years. Um, you have a labor relations manager that's uh, negotiating a contract for them. that has been here less than two years. Uh, and, and like I said, um, we have a lot of senior folks on, on the staff here. Uh, and what they're trying to do is rewrite this contract into their stern, into, uh, into something that, that they might understand as opposed to trying to work with the members to understand it better. So what they're fighting for is to, to maintain their lab jobs, to maintain their seniority, um, to maintain uh, a good health and welfare plan that they can count on for the term of the contract. Uh, a plan that won't charge them for being married and having other insurance available to them. Won't charge them for being a smoker. Uh, They're fighting to keep their uh, days off guaranteed. Um, They're fighting to keep their, their vacation whole. Once again, we're not, we're not, we're not asking for improvements to the vacation schedule. What we're doing is trying to just maintain what we have today. Um, You know, one of the reasons that the vacations is on the on the block is because we we have looked at uh, some of the 12 hour options uh, that the company has and decided that uh, that we would put it in there and let the members decide on on where they want to be with the um, 12 hour piece. So we would need to, in some cases, add language that would accommodate for a 12 hour schedule Um, in adding that language. That's where we end up with the vacation uh, time loss and time warp. Um, and they're fighting to eliminate their two wage system, um, or the two tier wage system that we have here. Uh, right now it's a $4 difference between tier one and tier two. Uh, we have differences of opinion on how to eliminate this, uh, two tier system. Um, but in the end, I, I think we can get there uh, on, on eliminating that two tier wage system. Uh, the company's proposed bonuses in lieu of raises in a lot of cases. And, uh, the, for roughly, for, for at least 20% of our workforce, the companies proposed um, bonuses in lieu of, of uh, wage increases. And that, uh, that psychologically, for, for our members and for their employees and workers everywhere, uh, doesn't cut it. You know That was a big piece that, that drove us to the streets at Topeka. Uh, we had wage classifications uh, there at Frito-Lay that hadn't received an increase for 10 years they got bonuses for 10 years and, um, and that led them to the streets. So, you know, we learn as we go and, um, and try not to repeat the same, same pieces that, uh, that upset our members elsewhere too. So, and the members here, they, they've been very clear. They don't want bonuses. They want to see a wage increase. Um, you know, the company considers this last best and final offer that they have offered, uh, a good offer. Um, yet, Uh, When we voted in a total democratic system, um, private, and it was a a secret ballot election, there was zero votes for the last best and final offer. Not a soul in the bargaining unit wanted the last best and final offer. And on that morning, they voted. Uh, They turned right back around and voted um, very overwhelmingly, 96%, to go ahead and initiate the strike with on and they walked out that morning. So, um, you know, the solidarity and the resolve of our local 100 G members here amazes me. And, um, I couldn't be any prouder to serve rhythm. I really couldn't. It's, uh, you know, that uh, members all around our, all around our international union, all around this Midwest are the same, you know, are the same way. We've been getting so much support out here with, uh, community support with labor support, uh, with our other BCTGM locals, uh, with Teamsters, with IBEW, with our Hawkeye Labor Council. Uh, and that keeps us going day to day. It really does. It keeps these members going and fighting in order to just, to, uh, fighting to keep what they had, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs to be in, especially in this economy. You would think that employers would, uh, would wisen up and reward their members, reward their workers and our members Uh, for the work that they've put in and the profits they've run for these companies over the last 18 to 24 months.
0: Speaking of which, how can our listeners uh, support the ingredient strikers as well as other BCTGM campaigns?
1: Absolutely. Um, You you can go to any of our social medias. Uh, We are on Facebook, the BCTGM international uh, union. We're also, uh, you can go to BCTGM.org. Uh, on that VCTGM.org site, there's a, uh, if you go to our blog, it will show four ways that you can help uh, the strikers here at ingredients. We do also have another uh, campaign and strike going on on the West coast uh, with corn nuts in case you haven't heard that one yet. Uh, it's a Hormel, it's a Hormel foods company. Um, so there's, they're in an unfair labor practice uh, strike out there uh, over health and welfare again. <laughs> and um but if you look down, if you look down, scroll down the blog, uh, you can find four ways to, to help with the ingredient and strike. You know, we're asking uh, folks, you know, if, if they're in the Cedar Rapids area or nearby, come on out to the line, pick up a sign and walk with us. Uh, we have real good members, uh, you know, down earth, down to earth, Midwest members out here, um, that do the same thing every other American in this country do. They come into work, they work hard in order to feed their families and, uh, and then go home to their families and, and, uh, you know, we have, we have, some damn, we have some real good members. I'm sorry, but, uh, uh, there's, we have a GoFundMe page as well, uh, set up. If, if people are interested in donating, um, cash, um, or, or money uh, contributions towards what we're working on, um, for any sort of, of water or food, food item, uh, they can bring them out to the line. Um, I could also get them, um, the address that, uh, that they could drop it off as well. Um, we're going to be starting up a uh, Action Network piece um, to help a, as a letter writing campaign uh, to uh, the CEO, uh, the, uh, the directors, the investors. Um, and that's going to be started up here probably in the next 24 hours. I have the link ready to start up on that, uh, on that front. And um, so we have a number of actions uh, that are coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow for anybody that's in or near the Cedar Rapids area. Um, at one at six PM, rather, we're going to have a, a large rally. Uh, we've had several of the Iowa politicians come out and speak. Uh, Liz Mathis uh, running for U.S. House will be out speaking at a rally again tomorrow. This is our second rally, and the second one uh, candidate Mathis has been out to uh, speak at. Uh, we're also having um, uh, Admiral Mike Franken. Uh, he's running against uh, Chuck Grassley for the U.S. Senate, U.S. Senate seat. Here in uh, Iowa, Uh, he'll be out on the line speaking tomorrow. You might get a glimpse of me for maybe three minutes. I don't don't like to get in front of the camera in the uh, the grandstanding, but uh, but that's, I guess, another part of the job. (laughs) And uh, and and we're really going to feature our members. So we're going to have a few of our members up to be able to tell their story, to tell why they're striking, what they're out here for, what's at stake for them. Um, and then we're going to help the uh, replacement workers know that, uh, that we're still out here in large numbers and there's a lot more of us than there is them. So that's uh, that will be at 6 p.m. tomorrow, September 1st, uh, for anybody who's in the Cedar Rapids area. Um, outside of that, you know, if you're in the area, driving by the area, stop by, even if it's 10, 15 minutes. Come by, say hi, uh, meet, meet some of these workers, meet some of these great Americans, great union members. And just down to earth, great people um, that we have out here that are fighting for for their contract. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to go without a paycheck for a month. Uh, we're 31 days, 31 days into the strike, and um, you know every every bit that every car that honks, uh, every person that comes out and spends a little time with us, uh, every donation to to the GoFundMe page goes a long ways towards helping these folks and helping our members. Uh, fight back against these large companies because, you know, we've we've taken on some of the larger companies in this uh, country, and uh, and our members have been able to come out come out in the end and prevail. You know, we will, uh, and we're continue to fight here, continue to go one day longer and one day stronger. So, you know, it's uh, that's what uh, that's what we we can do to help out. So,
0: amazing, Jason. Well, uh, just. Super stoked! I've spoken to you. Uh, you're so passionate and articulate, um, and obviously committed uh, to the work that you're doing. So, any, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience?
1: There's just there's just a couple pieces, and, and this may go on a little bit too long into into what I what I'm looking at. Um, you know, it's we, the company day one brought in un, unqualified, untrained uh, replacement workers to do these jobs, uh, but there's a there's a a fear uh, here in the community and amongst our members. Uh, if if you Google, uh, Cedar Rapids explosion, it'll bring up an article from 1919 about Douglas starts works. Um, this was a corn dust explosion uh, that happened within the same facility. Um, this, the explosion had 43 employees lost their lives. Oh my God. Level 200 houses. Oh my God! We've had we've had in, as recently as last night, and you can look on our you can look on our Facebook page. We're on Facebook. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, BCTGM. Let me pull it up here so I can get it to you and read it right. <laughs> oh,
0: what is it about cornstarch that makes it explode? I'm just curious. The, the manufacturing process is. I didn't well, what- realize it was, was so insanely dangerous.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so what happens is we dry this corn starch, and they dry it to, you know, maybe eight to eight to ten percent, maybe um, eight to ten percent moisture levels. And when it's concentrated, uh, one spark, one spark will um, will set it off. Um, especially when it's concentrated within a building, or even when it's when it's blown up within a cloud outside of the plant. Um so it's it's because it's so dry and it's a dust, it makes it explosive. Now what truly adds to the, the risk that we have here uh is is the company uses a a chemical called ethylene oxide. Mm. And this ethylene oxide I guess bleaches and, and and produces a chemical reaction with the starch in order to get to do what they needed to do with cardboard and with paper. Um, but this ethylene oxide, uh, we were watching, the, there was one of the members showing me a YouTube video. Uh, they utilize it to sterilize hospitals as well in some cases. They is
0: also what makes avocados and bananas ripen.
1: Yeah, really? I had, I had no idea, wow. <laughs> I,
0: I've, I've been in the produce business and um, when you want to ripen bananas, it's, uh, it's ethylene oxide.
1: Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> we learn something new every day. I appreciate that. Earl. But, uh, but yeah, the, with the, you know, some of the, some of the videos we've watched, you know, a, um, about 190 pounds maybe was left in uh, some EVAP tubes uh, for a hospital demonstration. And uh, it, it, when it exploded and ignited it completely worked out a 66,000 square foot warehouse. Just leveled it. Uh, for comparison' sake,s uh, we have we have over four thousand pounds of that stored on site here at this ingredient facility. A spill, a um, a spill, an ex- explosion within the dust that gets to that tank. Uh, someone screwing up, um, putting where it, it where it needs to go. It's an environmental risk waiting to happen, or explosion risk waiting to happen. Um, we've had the, the the replacement workers, and I'm, I'll keep it politically correct, replacement workers. <laughs> the replacement workers um, have been um, destroying pumps, um, uh, flooding basements. Um, they have they've done it to a point uh, to where the company has had to utilize uh, vacuum trucks to come in and vacuum out um solid waste uh, liquid waste and actually haul the waste out to uh, wastewater treatment centers uh because the su- the city sewage system uh, well first off a couple of weeks ago they backed it up uh, probably a mile up the road where they had to come in and actually clean the lines out uh, i believe they got threatened for that one but uh but they they've run so many of these trucks out of this facility out to the wastewater system and um, wastewater plant uh, because they have a cap on. The company has a cap on how much solids they can put right. down the lot and uh, and they've been either exceeding that cap or anticipating exceeding that cap to where it, it, it. The only thing I can think of is it must be cheaper for them to utilize these trucks as opposed to continuing to put it down the sewage line. Uh, a lot of our members would love to see what that sewage bill looks like, <laughs> but. Um, but uh, but no, they're they're having to run the, these trucks out somewhere um, because of the danger of putting it back down the line. Uh, there's a horrible stench that's working up, um, probably north of the plant. Depends on which way the wind blows a little bit, uh, but it's also coming out of the sewage lines. Uh, we've had folks chime into our uh, Facebook page uh, that owns a hair salon within the affected area. There's a a. a portion of town called Czech village, just up from the plant. This hair salon's up at Czech village. And she was talking about how, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to wash her client's hair when she's putting, leaning them back in a, in a sink. And it literally smells like raw sewage in the sink. So we're in the process of trying to inform city council of what's going on. Have the residents let them know uh, from last, from what it was last told to be, City Council is trying to tell them, oh, it's not ingredient, it's uh, you know, you're gonna need to get a plumber, but they find it awfully coincidence that they had never had this type of problem until 31 days ago. So, it's um, yeah, you know, that's that's gonna be a big piece that comes and the environmental risk that uh that runs out through it. So, um, you know, that's a, a big portion that I, I would really love to see uh, reported a little bit more because. You know, it's not to scare the community around here because their members—they're highly skilled, they're highly trained on what they do, and they work safe uh, because their lives depend on it. <laughs> you know, their lives depend on it, and um, you know that's that's what you get with a highly trained, unionized workforce—is skilled workers that that will work safely and work through it. They've uh, they've hauled three. Um, workers out, and I, just, I can't confirm whether they're uh, temporary workers or supervisors from other plants yet. Uh, but they've, they've hauled three people out of here in ambulances as well over the last 31 days. Um, so it's it's discerning, you know. And the uh, the professionalism of our members out here, Errol, uh, it um, it continues to amaze me as well. Uh, we talked about ethylene oxide there a minute ago. Uh, obviously, the ethylene oxide tanks have alarm warnings on it. Uh, the about a week ago, I guess it was, the alarm warning the alarm bells were going off on the ethylene oxide tank, and our members were were calling into the plant supervisors, making sure they knew that buzzer's going off, and that they got out there to make sure that they took care of that problem, even while we have all of our differences in contracts and all of our differences and we're on the street. They care that much and about the safety of the community and know the risks of what's going on, that they are going to make that call to make sure that we try to stay safe. I mean, we do not. We we truly wish speedy recovery to whatever happened to those three people. We, we don't wish anybody gets hurt. Uh, but those are the dangers of having un, unqualified and untrained replacement workers doing those jobs in there. So it's a you know, profit over people type of piece that uh, it's sad. It truly is.
0: That's, that's a lot to consider and pr- appreciate you sharing that additional detail because I think that lends a lot more gravity uh, to this situation, particularly for, for our listeners who've worked in industrial settings and have worked around hazardous chemicals uh, like, like myself and knowing how risky that is.
1: Oh, yes. So, and uh, you know, I, th- I can't thank you enough for, for helping put our, uh, our story and, uh, and our fight out in the media as well. Um, you know It means a lot for our, for our members as well. So thank you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to to work on this today with us too.
0: Yeah. Our pleasure, Jason. Thanks for being on the checkout.
1: All right. Thank you, And If there's anything else that I can help with, we get updates or whatnot, I'll be glad to let you know.